this week's episode of The First Three Podcast, we'll be looking at two series that are going big on animation, Demon Slayer and Heavenly Delusion. Both are doing a great job of breaking the bank on the animation, but only one has the real narrative chops to stand above the rest. Which one is it? You'll have to listen to find out. So let's kick this week off with a show that needs almost no introduction. Uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba, aka Demon Slayer, uh, one of the biggest properties going, coming to us from Studio UFO Table, probably best known for their work on Fate Zero, uh, as well as a long working relationship with the Tales series of video games. Um, they're a fairly unique studio in that they don't take on a lot of projects, and they tend to retain a great deal of their staff from project to project, which is fairly uncommon in the industry. Um, they haven't worked on a series other than Demon Slayer since 2019. It's been their bread and butter, and I mean, like, why not? It, it's just raking in the dough. The show is based on the manga of the same name by Koyoharu Gotoge, a somewhat mysterious author in that they use a pen name and their real identity remains unknown to this day. Um, while this might seem fairly unbelievable in this day and age, in Japan, uh, artists can retain a degree of anonymity if they so choose. A fairly famous example being the popular band Green, who produce million-seller hits like the karaoke staple Kiseki, uh, all the while being completely unknown. The four members of that group, uh, they met in dentistry school, it's believed, and uh, they were worried that they wouldn't be able to actually work as dentists if everyone knew they were part of this band. and. Turns out they probably don't even need to be dentists, they're making a lot of money singing songs. So for the uninitiated, uh, Demon Slayer is a pretty typical shonen series in that it features a young protagonist, Kamado Tanjiro, whose family is slaughtered by a demon save for his younger sister, Nezuko, and with uh, nowhere left to go and a sister to uh, protect. He decides that his only option is to become a demon slayer and uh, avenge his uh, family. The show is into its, uh, I guess, third season officially now at this point. So Tanjiro has faced off against a number of kind of lesser demons, and we're starting to get along in the plot now where their enemies are getting a little bit stronger. Uh, uh, everything is powering up as we're heading towards kind of the. Uh, final confrontation with the big bad Kibitsuji Muzan, who uh, kind of rules over all of the demons and uh, is a pretty menacing figure. And now we find ourselves in the Swordsmith Village arc. So in typical Demon Slayer fashion, we kick things off with a double episode uh, to start this uh, season off. These kind of extended runs here uh, have been kind of commonplace for the series. Um, as it's been so hugely popular, uh, things like double episodes um, have been kind of the norm uh, to start a season and to end a season. So we're kind of doing the same here. Um, episode kicks off with uh, the demons side of things here. We're getting a little meeting between the five remaining upper demons. Number five, Gyoko. Number four, Han Tengu. Number three, Akaza, who we saw in the Mugen train arc. Number two, Doma. 
and number one, Kokushibo. So these guys all have kind of unique personalities, and they, they're chatting in the Infinity Castle. I'm not exactly sure what this thing is, but apparently people already are very excited about the Infinity Castle being shown off, and it looked really impressive. It's kind of this uh, kind of shifting floors, shifting walls kind of place. It seemed like this existed in kind of this, like, infinite space. Um, and it was a first chance for Ufotepo to uh, really, like, flex their creative muscle. So a really impressive opening sequence here. Um, and it just kind of, like, sets the stage for what the bad guys want to do in this arc. They know that uh, Tanjiro is going to be going to the Swordsmith Village, or at least they have an inclination that they want to get something out of the Swordsmith Village, and uh, so they're going to send a couple of the demons there, and uh, they're just figuring out which one of them is going to actually, you know, do the do. So Yoko number five and Hantengu number four are chosen to uh, head out to the Swordsmith Village, and uh, they're gonna be our big bads for this arc at least so uh, we'll look forward to seeing them in a little while uh, then we flip over to Tanjiro who is recovering immediately following the um, entertainment district arc which was the last one that aired last year uh, so everything picks up right after the events of that uh, Tanjiro awakens out of a coma he kind of has a little bit of a recovery session which is I think the third or fourth time where We've seen uh, Tanjiro recovering from injuries, and uh, so it's kind of like a, a homecoming, I guess, kind of feeling for him. It's a chance for the show to reset the playing field and uh, remind us of all the different kind of tangents that our characters are heading off on. We get a fair amount of comedy in this section here. Um, this is kind of like a running thread throughout um, Demon Slayer, is that like a lot of these like little side bits, these you know, kind of like slice of life moments are really uh, gag heavy or big reactions. Uh, so I don't know, it doesn't really work for me because like it kind of like undercuts any amount of seriousness that's like going on in the plot at the time. And not that there was really you know, anything in this case there. Everyone's just happy that Tanjiro's doing okay. But um, it has a tendency to do this lot in the show uh, just to undercut a moment with some kind of gag and I don't know doesn't really work for me oh there is one little scene that isn't played up for laughs and it's a flashback that Tanjiro has uh, a vision of I think like a distant relative I think it's someone who looks exactly like him but in the past um and uh, a guest is being entertained at uh, like a little traditional you know house I guess and uh, this guest that's uh, talking to Tanjiro's uh, relative uh, looks a lot like uh, number one demon Kokushibo. Um, so I'm not sure what that's all about. Not really anything they really talk about. It's about protecting people and you know being you know good people and stuff. Nothing really too major, but uh, you know Tanjiro has this little vision and he's trying to figure out what it's all about. So Tanjiro gets to the uh, Swordsmith's village. He chats with the village chief, uh, who tells Tanjiro that they're looking for Haganezuka uh, at the moment, but he's kind of wandered off for a bit. So Tanjiro's going to have to wait to get his new sword forged by his uh, specific swordsmith. And while he's waiting around, he meets Kanroji Mitsuri, who is one of the Hashira, one of the like 
higher level uh, demon slayers out there. Um, and she is voiced by Hanazawa Kana, one of the absolute legends of the industry. Um, she's been around forever and she voices like a million things and she's really popular. Um, so it's a good, it's a good little role for her. Uh, she brings a lot of you know, bubbly energy to the character, so that's pretty cool. Um, we don't really see too much of uh, Mitsuri in the opening couple episodes here. She says hi to Tanjiro. They have a meal together and they kind of chat about things, and then she kind of like takes off. Um, so hopefully she comes back. She's kind of cool. And this episode ends with Tanjiro running into the other Hashira that's going to be part of this arc. Uh, Tokito Muichiro, uh, who is harassing some kid, wants a, a key from him or something, and uh, we don't really get too much, but uh, of course, Tanjiro, being the good little boy that he is, has to, you know, get in the way here and uh, stop the bullying, so uh, he surveys the scene a little bit, and beside the kid and uh, Muichiro, there's a long-haired samurai-looking guy who looks really similar to the guy that uh, Tanjiro saw in his little flashback, so uh, that's kind of like the stinger that closes the episode out. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the way that Demon Slayer's production works is that the series is directed by Sotozaki Haruo, um, who has been in charge of Demon Slayer's entire run, and uh, he's been around the industry in various key animation and animation director positions before uh, settling in over at UFO Table. Um, but uh, overall, what you find is that they're, the scripts are written by a number of different people on the team. Uh, there's also a number of episode directors specifically who are script writers as well as episode directors. You've got your key animation guy who jumps in as well and does some directing. So it's really this collective effort where a lot of people are wearing a lot of different hats, um, at least at the top levels of uh, the way that this place works, which is pretty interesting. So while the series might be like Sotozaki's vision of Demon Slayer, uh, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this one, so you get a lot of different little influences here depending on who's running the ship for a given episode. So uh, that's one thing to notice in this series is that you can get some kind of interesting little quirks uh, from episode to episode as they're possibly written and directed by completely different people. So episode 2 kicks off. Tanjiro jumps in, stops uh, Muichiro from bullying this poor kid whose name is Kotetsu. Um, and Muichiro is this really detached, robotic kind of kid. And he's kind of interesting because like you think he's being a jerk, but then you're not sure if he's maybe just kind of like spaced out, and that's just kind of like how he is. So uh, I like his design. Nothing too flashy, but uh, he's accented with teal, which is a pretty sweet color. Um, and if you're gonna give me a character that's a bit of a trope, then the kind of like expressionless character is one that I can definitely get behind. So Kotetsu ends up giving Muichiro the key that uh, Muichiro was looking for, um, and it turns out that that key is for uh, this mechanical doll. The samurai figure that Tanjiro thought that he saw was actually uh, a human-sized mechanical doll uh, built for uh, kind of training, sparring, I guess. It apparently was crafted centuries ago, and uh, Kotetsu is uh, the remaining swordsmith of the family, and so he's been tasked with preserving the doll. So Muichiro fires the doll up and then gets to training a little bit. Uh, so. 
Tanjiro gets the chance to kind of see what this kid's got, and uh, Nuchiro's got some moves. His sword breaks, and so he has to call it a day. Then we get Tanjiro doing a little bit of training himself with the mechanical doll. Um, he gets beat up a heck of a lot. This is more of the comedy stuff that I'm not really a huge fan of. Um, but uh, he spends a little while going up against the doll and uh, eventually lands a hit on the doll, revealing a uh, sword lodged in the doll's chest cavity that had been there for hundreds of years. So where episode one did a lot more work setting up the roadmap of where we're going to go this season, um, episode two was just more of a character focus bit. Uh, it looks like Muichiro is going to be more of the focus, and so they're giving him more screen time here. So that's what we get in this episode. Um, we don't really get to know too much about him, uh, other than he's just kind of this aloof, distant weirdo, and that he's definitely earned his Hashira status. He's, uh, definitely pretty strong. But it's here that we get into one of my kind of gripes with this series in that we don't really get to know anything about Muichiro at this point. Um, this would have been a decent opportunity to have him interact with Tanjiro in any kind of meaningful way. I don't know, you don't have to like get deep into the backstory, you know, at a, on a first meeting or anything, but like there just wasn't a whole lot of anything there. And this happens a lot in the series is Tanjiro just kind of like meets these people and then they like go into battle and then we find out more about them and oh I just wish that this show would take a little bit more time kind of building the world before we get to a fight but what I'm coming to realize more and more is that with this show there the world doesn't really matter it's all about the characters and because of that it, it all these events can kind of take place anywhere. Like, since the first season, we've had the Mugen Train arc, uh, which was a movie first and then a shorter series. Uh, then we jumped into Entertainment District arc, and now we're in Swordsmith Village arc. And it just feels almost like a like a video, like a fighting video game, uh, where we've selected our characters, we've chosen our, you know, arena, and now we're going to go into battle. And I just don't understand like why we can't build things up a little bit more in between. There's just no narrative connective tissue uh, to this series. It's just like, here's the fight, now on to the next fight, next fight. So I, I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm wanting a little bit more out of the narrative side of things and I'm just not getting it. Now, a while back I actually did write an article about Demon Slayer as seen through the lens of the Roland Barthes uh, 1954 essay, The World of Wrestling, which, when you think about it, kind of makes uh, a lot of sense. You know, uh, a product like WWE, uh, you've got, you know, very clear roles in the ring. You've got a good guy, a bad guy, your, your face and your heel. Um, and uh, the narrative takes place in the ring there. When you're watching a fight, you're, you're watching all of the excess, all the, you know, the big moves go off. And, and that's what you're Therefore, you're not really there for any kind of extra narrative, although you might see like a promo cut here or there uh, for an upcoming fight or whatever. But um, what you what you want to see is just that spectacle in the ring, and that's kind of what Demon Slayer does to a T. Um, it's the way that the animation looks fantastic, um, and that it's such a clear-cut case of you know. Tanjiro, the good guy, versus all these demons, the bad guys. 
Um, so the stakes are very clear and here, here for the spectacle of it. And as Barth says in his essay, wrestling partakes of the nature of the great solar spectacles, Greek drama and bullfights. In both, a light without shadow generates an emotion without reserve. And that's kind of what we see in every fight in Demon Slayer is these like exaggerated, huge emotional moments in a fight. In doing so, give us what Barth says are the three tenets of any good spectacle, suffering, defeat, and justice. Um, we see, you know, suffering when we see Tanjiro down for the count, bleeding, beat up, and the demon kind of like gloating over our hero. We as the audience have to feel that powerlessness. Um, that's what we're looking for in that scene is to see, you know, what we think might be Tanjiro's ultimate downfall. But we know this won't be the case. We know that Tanjiro has like bulletproof plot armor. And so we're just waiting for justice to prevail. And that's why Tanjiro is such a goody two-shoes. Like he has to epitomize this purely moral concept of justice at all times. He has to be so good so that he can smite these demons. In the case of last season's arc, it looked like Yutaro, the uh, upper demon number six, I think he was, uh, had the upper hand, Tanjiro was going down, it looked like he might have actually met his match. But because Yutaro is a classic villain in the wrestling sense, in the narrative sense, uh, he gloats too much, his ego gets the best of him. And so uh, the greater the contrast between the success of a move and the reversal of fortune, the nearer the good luck of a contestant to his downfall the more satisfying the dramatic mime is felt to be. So when Tanjiro turning the tides when all seems lost and with the you know visual flair that UFO table is able to provide, it manages to create these spectacles of excess that are just uh, what we're here to see. And at this point, you know, everyone involved in the production of this anime knows that that's what we're here for. There's plot, is, you know it's kind of there but really it's these fights and it's this animation that we're just like drooling over i feel like i got off on this tangent talking about how muichiro we didn't learn anything about him and i wanted to know more about him and i think what i just was talking about there is why we don't get to know more about him at this point because uh what demon slayer does so well is it um lays everything out in the ring and that includes all of the emotional beats that we're supposed to feel for characters happens in a fight. And um, that's what's happened in the last couple of uh, seasons. And I have to imagine that's what we're going to get here as well. So episode three, we get a little bit more comedy off the start. Uh, the sword inside the mechanical doll is rusty and unusable. And here's where we finally get to meet Hagi Nezuka, uh, who is willing to uh, take the sword, fix it up for Tanjiro, and uh, gives Tanjiro a loner sword for the time being. So Tanjiro returns to the swordsmith village, and uh, it's just kind of like hanging out. He chats with Genya. Genya's this angry dude who I think we've met before, but can't really remember him. And then we get a hint of plot here with uh, the two upper rank demons, Gyoko and Hantengu, slowly creeping towards the swordsmith village. We then get a little scene with Tanjiro and Muichiro 
um, Luchiro asking a couple of questions about Haganezuka and how Tanjiro also knows Kanamori, who's another swordsmith in the village. Um, and then kind of asks why Tanjiro feels so compelled to help people. So it's just some kind of light little banter between the two of them. Uh, builds a little bit of character, but then the demons bust in, making their entrance into the ring, so to speak. And we get uh, Luichiro springing into action uh, with uh, his technique of mist breathing. Uh, pops a demon's head off right away, thinks, okay, we got this guy. But doing this only seems to cause the demon to uh, kind of duplicate itself. So now we've got a couple of demons to take care of here. Um, and unfortunately, Muichiro gets blasted out of the arena, uh, sent flying. And uh, leaving just uh, Tanjiro and Genya showing up to uh, kind of provide some support. Genya's got this rad little uh, sawed-off shotgun-looking thing that uh, blasts one of the demons and again splits it, causing it to duplicate again. And then Genya gets smoked, so that doesn't look very good for him. Uh, the episode ends with Muichiro saving Kotetsu, who's being attacked by a little smaller fish-looking demon thing. He was... Uh, inspired by Tanjiro's desire to help people uh, and so thought to save Kotetsu when he was ready to just run right past him and, and, and leave him for dead basically so uh, good boy Tanjiro spreading that positivity to uh, everyone far and wide so that's the first three episodes of this season of Demon Slayer and as a first three it does what it's supposed to do um we set up the plot, who, who, who are the demons that are going to be sent out to take on Tanjiro this time around? Okay, we got that. Where is Tanjiro going? He's going to the swordsman's village. Okay, we've got that. Uh, who are our supporting cast? We've got some new Hashira who we met way back in the first season, but uh, now we're getting them in the spotlight. And uh, the third episode gives us the, you know, start of the battle that's probably going to take up the remainder of the time. Um, so when it comes to following the first three formula, uh, it gives you everything that you're looking for uh, to at least make the decision whether or not you want to keep going or not. Um, the teaser of more, you know, spectacular action to come is a pretty big draw for this series. Uh, you know it's going to look pretty good. It's something that UFO Table prides themselves on, and their style is pretty unique. A fascinating blend of CG and traditional 2D animation. I don't think that there's anybody in the biz that does it quite as well as UFO Table does. Um, from time to time, some of their uh, 3D stuff doesn't look, you know, top-notch all the time, but kind of like where it matters when Muichiro lops off the demon's head at the end of episode 3, it looks really good. And it's those moments where the show really spends all of its budget. I mean, that's what we're here for, really, is we're here to see Tanjiro, you know, emerge victorious again. We know he's not gonna die at this point in the series. That would be, I mean, that would be pretty wild if they did do something like that, but I don't think that's in the cards here. He's too good of a boy. Uh, they can't kill him off at this point. So, you know that he's going to win. You're just waiting to see how he's going to do it. What uh, new level of, uh, you know, sword skill is he going to hit that uh, we're going to be impressed by here. 
what's it gonna take to take down these two new foes um, that's what we're here for now I will admit that just to be here for the spectacle of it all is getting a little bit tiring as I've kind of laid out it's the some of the things I don't really care for about this series the comedy elements generally fall pretty flat um, I mean I don't mind it every now and then, but it seems like every single thing it has to be kind of like jokey and we get these kind of like, you know, super deformed character models to, you know, show off like, oh, it's a joke right now. And it's like, I don't, I don't really like that. Um, and I wish there was just a little bit more narrative. You don't have to give me all of it, but you know, the fact that we're at the end of episode three and we are full on in to the fight that's going to take up the rest of the time and then like I don't know anything about the swordsmith village really I don't really know anything about Moichiro um Mitsuri just took off you know so uh like the characters that we're supposed to like actually care about how are we supposed to care about them when we know nothing about them at this point now I have a sneaking suspicion that we are going to get you know filled in on all of that as we go uh which has kind of been what the show has been doing for a while now but I don't know like I just get a little bit tired of that so um I mean it's one of those shows that you can't not watch really if you've already kind of invested this much time in it like you're gonna keep going with it so I'm probably gonna keep watching it but I don't know I might be hitting fast forward a bit more than I usually do So the second series that we'll be covering today is Tengoku Daimakyo, Heavenly Delusion, uh, coming to us from Production IG, one of the big name studios uh, in the industry. And uh, we've got first time director uh, Mori Hirotaka behind uh, the camera here, so to speak. Uh, he's done some episode directing work with uh, Haikyuu, um, and I think I saw Erased as well. Um, but first time being kind of like the head honcho on a project, which is pretty exciting. Uh, the show is based on a manga by Ishiguro Masakazu, who did the uh, maid-focused uh, series Sore Machi, which is a pretty cute series, but really uh, couldn't be much more different from what uh, Heavenly Delusion seems to be offering here. So what is this show all about? Let's get into it. In Japan, in the year 2024, an apocalyptic event known as the Calamity has occurred. Uh, we don't really know at this point in the story what uh, the Calamity is. We're introduced to this world 15 years after the Calamity has occurred, uh, so it's a post-apocalyptic uh, situation. Lots of uh, towns and cities have been reclaimed by nature, so whatever caused the calamity did seem to wipe out a good chunk of the population. So our story begins in what looks to be some kind of uh, school or academy. It uh, does seem fairly futuristic. There are a fair amount of uh, robotics. Uh, the teachers are robots. There are some pretty uh, high-spec uh, Roombas going around cleaning things up. Uh, there's a kid that's got a uh, motorized wheelchair that looks pretty high-tech. So it's got this fairly like clean sci-fi kind of look to it. Um, all the kids just seem pretty normal. Boy whose name is Tokyo 
uh, is taking a test when uh, his little tablet device uh, kind of glitches out and uh, asks him the question, do you want to go outside? And uh, this sparks some curiosity in him, and we then quickly flash to uh, the outside world. It's, uh, this is our first look at the kind of the post-apocalypse side of things. We've got rusted out cars, uh, buildings are dilapidated, uh, it's overrun with plant life. And as far as uh, future wastelands go, uh, this looks really nice. It looks absolutely gorgeous. The background work is really solid here. And here's where we meet our two, I think, leads at this point, based on what I've seen in the first three episodes here. Um, Maru and Kiruko, a uh, boy and a girl, a couple of, uh, you know, teenage kids who are just kind of making their way in the world here. Um, they're searching through a house that they kind of stumble upon that looks like it might still have some stuff in it. And as they're rooting around, they unfortunately come across a corpse. But while both are kind of saddened by this uh, discovery, uh, it looks like uh, both of them have seen this before. It seems like a fairly common occurrence in this uh, kind of bleak, post-apocalyptic world. Um, the cause of death, they believe, is starvation, which they uh, say is what uh, takes most people because it seems like uh, supply chains have just kind of run dry at this point. So uh, kind of rough going for anyone who manages to survive in this world. And after we flip from the school setting to this post-apocalypse world, um, what immediately becomes apparent is that the budget is high for this project. Production IG is a well-respected studio in the anime industry, and it's uh, no surprise they've been able to pull in a lot of uh, talent at all levels to deliver something that looks really, really good. And we get our first real taste of kind of like what uh, to expect with the animation here when uh, Maru and Kiruko run afoul of a couple of uh, survivors that look to take advantage of uh, what they perceive to be a couple of under-equipped kids. But it doesn't take long for Maru and Kiruko to uh, turn the tables on these guys. Um, uh, Kiruko pulls out a, a gun, uh, which immediately kind of is a sense of threatening vibe. And Maru seems to be pretty well equipped when it comes to hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat. Uh, so these guys don't really stand a chance, and uh, it only takes Kiruko firing one kind of warning shot with this uh, gun that apparently blasts like a laser-type uh, beam. And these uh, older, kind of grouchy uh, survivors immediately kind of change their tune and uh, agree to help out, and uh, it's here that uh, Maru and Kiruko ask these guys if they've heard of a place called Heaven before, and... Uh, the guys are like, oh yeah, we might have heard something about that, and so they jot down some directions on the map that Kiriko's uh, holding on to, and uh, Maru and Kiriko are on their way again. We flip back to the school setting again. Uh, Tokyo is talking with his classmate uh, Mimi Hime, uh, who's this kind of like sleepy-eyed girl with big bushy eyebrows. She's pretty cute. Um, and uh, they're both chatting about the outside. What's the outside all about? And uh, Tokyo just can't get his idea out of his head, so he's wandering around the campus at night, and he runs into the director of the school. Um, and when Tokyo asks the director uh, about the outside, uh, the director is pretty surprised. And uh, at first is, like, not sure what to say, but then does decide to uh, let Tokyo in on the... Uh, 
I don't know, big secret, I guess, that there is, in fact, an outside beyond the walls of the uh, school grounds. So we go back to Maru and Kiruko, and they're on their way to uh, the tomato heaven that they've been told about by the uh, scruffy survivors. Uh, but it's getting late, they're looking for a place to stop, and they find this house that appears to have signs of life. Uh, there's a woman running the place as an inn of sorts for weary travelers, and they, uh, the kids are able to freshen up, and uh, the woman seems, you know, pretty nice. Uh, you know, in, in any kind of situation like this, uh, even someone who seems nice, you're always like, eh, is she gonna do something? I'm thinking she might do something. And, I don't know, just the vibes, the, the angles of cameras, and uh, just the way that the whole house looks, it's a little bit creepy. Uh, even though it kind of has some signs of being normal. I don't know, the vibes are just not good off the bat. And I think Hyuriko kind of picked up on this pretty early on. So the woman that runs this house, uh, she lets Maru and Kiruko know that there is a beast that's kind of uh, lurking around the area. They should be very careful. But the uh, the kids almost like immediately are like, oh, are you talking about a man-eater? And the woman immediately starts to kind of like wig out about their uh, knowledge of the man-eater. So uh, another kind of like a red flag that uh, things maybe aren't as they seem here. So episode one ends with the two kids falling asleep. But uh, the woman that runs the place is doing all kinds of things. She's got a shotgun. Uh, ready to roll and uh, just then a big demon thing kind of appears outside is this giant headless bird looking kind of thing um, it appears uh, at the window uh, in the darkness and uh, that's our, our closing shot of the first episode there so from the get-go this show seems fairly ambitious in that we've got two uh, main plot lines kind of running in parallel to each other here and we're jumping back and forth between the two, the school setting, and then the kind of outside, the post-apocalypse world. It's uh, a little disorienting at first, uh, because it doesn't seem like there's any major connective tissue between the two plot threads at this point. Like, are these two things happening at the same time? Are they somewhere uh, close in geography? A uh, lot of unknowns at this point, um, which I think, you know, adds to the appeal i would say and that you don't really know what's going on between these two different worlds at this point but one thing that we do know immediately is that this show looks amazing um the background work is like stellar um and that's uh, because the art director here is kaneko yuji uh, who has worked on ranking of kings which is amazing uh kill a kill which is a pretty big hit and uh, Sakasama no Patema, which is a, was a movie from a couple years ago. Um, it's got a, another kind of like a weird post-apocalypse, but also kind of like bright and cheery kind of vibe as well. So, um, and he's also done uh, background work for Shinkai Makoto. So it's uh, no surprise that the show just looks amazing. And when you combine that with some wonderfully choreographed uh, action scenes, uh, what you get is just an excellent package all around. Production IG definitely has the clout to kind of like bring in people that they want specifically. And uh, uh, Mori, the director, wanted to have Takeuchi Tetsuya come in and do some, some work for them. Uh, and uh, he's someone who's well known in the uh, kind of storyboarding world of uh, really creating some 
high-flying, energetic uh, action scenes. And, and we see his work in the uh, first uh, fight with the uh, kind of scruffy survivor guys. And that first action scene really kind of sets the tone for what to expect. And uh, things kind of only get better from here. So, uh, yeah, nice first impression for sure. So, the world, or worlds, I guess, uh, have been kind of set up in the first episode here. Uh, episode 2 is kind of like hammering home some of the themes, I guess. And uh, we go back to the school. Uh, Tokyo is still kind of wondering about what uh, uh, the outside world might mean. Um, now... He's chatting with a classmate who's uh, in a wheelchair and appears to be suffering from some kind of disease or infection. He's got this little like purple mark on his arm and uh, we don't really get a whole lot, but the camera does focus on that for a few seconds. And so we, we see what uh, could be kind of brewing under the surface here. So we get introduced to a few more of the cast members here in the school setting. Uh, one of which is Cuckoo, this kind of like awkward uh, girl uh, who has just scored a drawing from uh, Kona, the, the hot guy around the school. Uh, Kona had promised to draw something for Tokyo, but uh, Cuckoo has stolen it, taken it, called dibs on it, um, and uh, Tokyo's a little bit uh, annoyed by this. Seems like he may or may not have a crush on Kona. It's a little hard to tell, but I think he's, he's putting off the vibes. Um, he uh, kind of confronts Kona about why he decided to give Cuckoo the drawing that he had asked for. Um, Kona's got some interesting art. It's kind of like this weird, like, guru kind of stuff that's just a little bit odd. Um, and uh, so there's that little scene to kind of start things off. Then we go back to uh, Maru and Kiruko. So it feels like it's going to be flip-flopping between the two quite often here. So we are back at the uh, the house it's night uh and uh Kiruko has kind of come to in the middle of the night and uh, something's not right and she wakes up maru and the two of them head outside to kind of investigate um they haven't seen the the woman yet um but they do encounter the uh man eater it uh, emerges out of the darkness it looks pretty menacing maru and Kiruko seem like they are pretty confident that they can take it they've got the uh, gun ready to roll and maru's got his you know fists up ready to fight the thing um it pulls off a couple of moves where he's got these whips kind of going and uh, so the kids are a little taken aback by that really uh, action heavy scene here which is uh, really great to see um it looked really impressive kids are dodging and diving out of the way of things the man-eater is breaking through stuff it's blowing stuff up it's uh yeah kind of pretty big and you know set pc and uh yeah really really good action scene here um then they encounter the woman who begs you know kiruko and maru to stop uh, fighting this uh, this man-eater um because the uh the, the beast itself is her son uh, her son was was eaten by the beast it seems and uh, she claims that it now has his consciousness inside it and for a moment it seems like she's you know right on about this because the monster kind of like you know chills out a little bit uh, but then something happens that is not so cool uh, and so uh, 
Kiriko and Maru have to take care of the beast. And uh, Maru gets up real close to the thing and uh, kind of like reaches into it and uh, uh, crushes the thing's heart with his own hand. Um, not quite sure how he's doing this. Um, isn't really explained, but uh, cool. He, you know, he's got some pretty sweet uh, jujitsu moves there, so right on there. And while like Maru seems to be freaking out a little bit more about how things go, you can tell that Kiriko has been through all this before. Um, she's all business, and she's like, well, we just gotta move on. We're on our way to Tomato Heaven, or whatever this place is called. We're like, okay, let's just keep rolling. And we get some more uh, great background art. Uh, we come across a scene where uh, it looks like a village is, like, flooded out or something. Like, it, it's just become, like, a, a permanent lake, basically. And so, uh, the two of them have to, uh, make their way across on a little you know, ramshackle boat thing that they kind of, uh, make for themselves. And then we're back to the school again. Tokyo still talking about outside, outside, outside. Okay, we get it. Um, one of his classmates tries to use the, like, uh, kind of fancy Roombas they've got rolling around the school to kind of climb up a wall. The, the Roombas seem to attach to things and then do the little sweeping protocol or whatever. And so he tries to ride uh, these Roombas up a wall, gets up pretty high, uh, but then they kind of crap out and they send him tumbling down to the ground. Uh, he falls pretty far, but uh, and he also smacks the ground pretty damn hard as well. But he bounces up and seems just fine. So, you know, we haven't really been given too much information about what these kids are all about, but uh, I don't know, you fall from like, 20, 25 feet or something like that, and uh, you can just pop right back up. That's a little bit strange. Um, and that's it for that little scene. So we're just getting very small little pieces about this school situation before we kind of cut back to our main duo, who we're really trying to get uh, the viewer endeared to, it seems. So they've made it to uh, Tomato Heaven, it's a farm that seems to be run by some folks. Uh, they've kind of established their own little, like, you know, piece of paradise here in this uh, horrible post-apocalyptic existence. And, uh, you know, they've got a little community kind of built up. It seems pretty nice. Um, it isn't the heaven that uh, Maru is looking for, unfortunately. Um, but what we do get is a little bit more story stuff here. Um, Maru hands Kiruko a canister with a drug in it, apparently, and he's been told that uh, somewhere in the world is someone who has the same face as him, which is our first real connection to the school because Maru looks a lot like Tokyo, um, and that when he finds this uh, person who has his face, uh, Maru is supposed to inject the drug into the person why we're not really sure if he, th he thinks it's to do some good like to save the person so uh but it's not really clear what this thing might do is he being lied to we don't really know um and we get a little bit more about the kind of weird purple sickness on people's bodies that we're seeing um there's a little flashback to a woman named mikura who uh seems to have been someone important to maru and uh, she had the sickness all over her body and it looks like she was going to die and so she's entrusted uh, Kiruko to protect Maru for her. 
So because this farm doesn't seem to be what they were looking for, in fact, uh, Maru and Kiriko decide that they're going to head back to uh, Tokyo, the city. And um, this farm, they have access to a boat, uh, which will cross uh, a river, lake, maybe the ocean, it's not really clear, some body of water, and take them back towards Tokyo. Uh, so they uh, agree to hop on, and uh, it's, uh, it's here that Maru confesses to Kiruko, but uh, she refuses, saying something very interesting here. She says that she has the body of a woman, but uh, in her head, she's a man. Um, so what could that be all about? So episode two was really a nice focus on our two lead characters. The chemistry between them is really great. There's lots of banter and uh, the kind of squabbling that you would expect to hear between two teenagers. Um, yeah, I think it's a credit to the uh, work of the voice actors here. Um, we've got Kiriko being voiced by Sembongi Sayaka, who I'm not too familiar with. She does play Haru in Beastars, but she's really great as Kiriko here, and apparently uh, she was a fan of the manga uh, before the anime was even announced, and so getting to be uh, a character in the series has been a big plus for her, which is awesome. That's uh, that's really cool. Um, and on the on Maru's side here, we've got Sato Gen, who between this and Insomniac's After School, I'm really getting a steady diet of Sato's voice here. Um, he's uh, a little bit more animated in uh, this, I guess, but he's got the same kind of I guess flustered energy. Uh, that uh, Nakami has in Insomniacs After School, so uh, yeah, some some similarities between the two characters, but uh, yeah, good work as well on that front. So episode three is mostly uh, a flashback to five years ago in the Asakusa area of Tokyo, um, where Hidako earns a living as kind of a, a race car driver, I guess, in a way. Uh, they kind of made this little uh, Mario Kart style league of, uh, of, of racing uh, through the empty streets of Tokyo and uh, Kiriko is able to earn some cash this way. Um, she is living at a makeshift like orphanage uh, with her younger brother Haruki and uh, here we also get to meet um, Inazaki Robin who is uh, someone who Kiriko mentions very briefly in episode one as someone that she's looking for. And so now we get to see who this person actually is. So starting to connect some of the little, little plot pieces are kind of coming together here. So even in the cities here, the man-eaters are still kind of prevalent. Um, and uh, Robin and uh, some of the older folks who kind of live in the neighborhood around the orphanage uh, protect people and uh, they uh, one night they're heading out to uh, uh, take care of a man-eater that's appeared and uh, Haruki decides to join them uh, he's trying to be a, a tough kid he's trying to you know protect his older sister and uh, so he uh, has kind of fashioned this little crossbow thing that he uses to fight off the man-eaters and uh, apparently he you know is pretty decent at it although Robin kind of scolds him for you know helping out when really he told the kids to stay home and stay safe 
So uh, one day while uh, Kiriko is off racing, Haruki decides to go watch and he notices that there's a man-eater very close to the kind of racing line, the track that they're, they've set up for the day. And uh, uh, Haruki decides to confront the man-eater, uh, fires a shot, doesn't do anything, um, decides to try and stab the thing in the face, but the beast then starts kind of like consuming him, which is pretty horrific. Um, and uh, as the racers are kind of you know heading towards where the uh, man-eater is, uh, Kitako notices this and uh, stops the race. Uh, as she does, she realizes that uh, her younger brother is well into the jaw of this man-eater thing, um, and she tries frantically to pull him out. Uh, she does, but uh, unfortunately there's not much left of the poor kid, just kind of this uh, uh, torso and head, and he's, he's not long for this world. Um, and then it uh, kind of quick cuts to uh, hospital, and uh, Kitako wakes up, and uh, at least we think it's Kitako, uh, wakes up and uh, starts kind of wandering around the hospital, has got all kinds of bandages, and uh, looks in pretty rough shape, but comes across a, a mirror, and seeing the reflection that they do, uh, immediately the first reaction is Omechan. So we realize that uh, Haruki is actually still inside Hiroko in some capacity, which is pretty wild. Um, so poor Haruki, is, I guess his, his brain is still in, inside uh, the body of Hiroko. Like it's a little unclear exactly what has been done to these two. Um, but some kind of horrible body horror situation is going on, and Haruki really has a, a freak-out moment, realizing that he's in the body of his sister. What happened to his sister? Wasn't she okay? Like, she pulled him out of the man-eater's grasp, so uh, something that we don't really know too much about, but um, now our Haruki-Kiriko hybrid kid... Uh, is in search of Robin and uh, the doctor who performed the operation on on them, and uh, that's uh, kind of where we're at. Maru has been listening to this flashback uh, patiently this whole time, and he's, he's pretty shook by the whole thing, uh, and a little bit bummed out, I guess, because he really had the hots for uh, Kiriko, and now he's a little bit confused as to what all of this means after uh, after finding all of this information out. Okay, so that is the first three episodes of Heavenly Delusion. Um, there's a lot going on. It's a busy series. Um, cutting between the two different uh, plot threads that we're slowly kind of making connections to, but at this early stage, it's hard to really see uh, how much connective tissue there is at this point. Um, but it's juggling the balance of the two pretty well. There was definitely more of a focus on Maru and Kiruko in uh, these first three episodes. I think it really wanted you to get invested in their story first, and I think that it worked pretty well. Um, I found that the uh, you know the characters really rubbed off on me pretty quickly, and uh, when we kind of hit some more emotional notes in the third episode here, I was already fairly invested in what was going on. 
Uh, so a good sign there that uh, everything is kind of coming together. The music is another standout. It's uh, again Kensuke Ushio who is doing the music for Dangers in My Heart right now. Um, whereas that is definitely more piano driven stuff. It's more uh, kind of like emotional hitting the, the right moments of the scene. Uh, this uh, soundtrack is a lot more ambient and it's a lot more synth based but it still really like pumps up the action where it needs to um, and when things do kind of hit some more emotional moments uh, we do bring in the piano again and uh, it's uh, all in all really nice uh, accompaniment to the visuals that we're getting as well so the whole package kind of really uh, is is clear in setting the tone of what it wants to be and um, when you've got like really quality people working on in all of the kind of key areas there and a lot of the uh, staff on board for this project have like worked together on previous projects so all of that kind of stuff is factoring into making this like a really slick production so yeah in the first three episodes it really presents a lot there's a lot of plot to digest here, I think. Um, the character work is really good. Um, I find that the characters in the school are less developed at this point, but I feel like there's got to be some point where we switch over and start focusing on them a little bit more. Um, but uh, Maru and Kiruko are great. Um, feels like a real genuine relationship there. Um, so, you know, that work is really good. Uh, there's enough plot threads that have been like laid out already that you're curious to see where they might go because it feels like they could go in any number of directions and there's always you know the overarching kind of like commentary that could factor in uh, with any kind of like post-apocalypse setting um, it's often used to be kind of like this canvas for you know working out all kinds of uh, you know societal issues and whatnot so I'm sure that as the series kind of goes on, we're going to dig into those thematic elements, but uh, I think that the uh, ambitious narrative structure is kind of uh, preventing any of the thematic elements from really jumping out right away, and that's that's okay, because the narrative elements that are there, the kind of like split plot threads that we've got going on here, are interesting enough that uh, they're kind of like keeping us entertained and as time goes on through the series, I imagine that we're going to start to kind of hit those thematic beats a little bit harder. So that's going to do it for this episode of the first three podcast. And I think I'm actually ready to admit that Demon Slayer really is all style, no substance, mostly. Uh, can't quite rule it all out yet. There could be something coming up, but uh, I don't know from what I've seen just not really feeling it. I think the action looks great, characters are okay, but uh, yeah, it's got, it's just not doing it for me. On the other hand, uh, Heavenly Delusion, what a surprise, what a, what a, what a great uh, combination of strong, interesting narrative and excellent animation to back it up. Um, Production IG is doing a great job on that show and I hope that it continues to do so. Um, it looks like a real winner. So that's going to do it. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, next week, we will have a guest for the first time. 
So uh, stay tuned for that next week. Uh, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.